morning, everyone. It's great to see you here this morning. My name's Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at SWEC. And today we're exploring the idea of death. That was a clip from Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, um, the wizard, is talking to Pippin before a battle that they may not survive. And it was a bit hard to pick up the audio there, but Gandalf says, no, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The grey rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver grass, glass, and then you see white shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. We resonate with that picture because we feel in our bones that death should not be the end. This life feels like it's preparing us for something else. Today we're going to be diving into the topic of death. You know, that topic that no one ever wants to talk about because it's too difficult. That topic that after thousands of years of human history we still don't know what to do with. I'm going to argue today that we rage against the idea that death is the end because it was never meant to be the end. We were made for eternity. Death is an unnatural intrusion that came about because of our unnatural rebellion against our Creator. But is that all there is? Is our future just darkness and oblivion? Is Gandalf's vision of a far green country just a fantasy to give us false hope? Well, stay with me for the next little while and we'll see. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the chance to explore death today. We thank you, Father, that we can talk about it, not with despair, but with hope. Because as we'll see, Jesus brings hope. Jesus brings hope to the topic of death because he tells us that death is not the end that he embodies a hope. We pray that today we might encounter that hope. Amen. It's not just in stories like Lord of the Rings that death is seen as uh, not just being the last word, but a transition to something beyond. In our world, we hold on to a hope that death isn't the end because intuitively we feel in our bones that life is a story that shouldn't end, and that's our first point. Modern Western cultures are terrible at dealing with death. We avoid talking about it. We don't want to think about it. I saw some figures recently that, uh, from the UK that said only about a third of adults have actually made a will. 
An Australian financial firm, Australian Lifestyle Partners, claims that 52% of Australians don't have a will. Now, there are probably all sorts of reasons for that. If you're young, you think you're never going to die. It's something you don't have to deal with. But, I th but then I think that a significant reason is that we actually don't want to confront the idea of our own death. We don't want to think about it. And so we put off making a will. And I want to suggest one reason for that is that unlike just about every other culture in the world, in the history of human civilization, we think that death is the end, on, on one level at least. We're told that the material world is all there is. It leaves no understanding for life beyond the grave. And that leaves us dreading the idea that a day is coming when just like that we will no longer exist. Terry Pratchett, the uh, British fantasy author, said this, the death of the warrior or the old man or the little child, this I understand. And I take away the pain and end the suffering. I do not understand this death of the mind. American philosopher, uh, philosophy professor Alison Gopnik says something similar. Gopnik says, We fear death so profoundly, not because it means the end of our body, but because it means the end of our consciousness. Better be to be a spirit in heaven than a zombie on earth. The death of our mind, the ending of our consciousness, suddenly being snuffed out. That's something we fear. We can't comprehend that. It goes against every fibre of our being. Why is that? Well, I want to suggest... It's because that's not how we've been programmed. As human beings, we have been hardwired to live for eternity. In the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, a wise man called the teacher says this in Ecclesiastes 3. He says, He has made everything, that's talking about God, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. And so even though that we're told that the material world is all there is and that death is just a natural part of life, that science leaves no room for anything beyond the grave and that we just have to accept that, that when we draw our final breath, that's it, there's nothing more. When it comes down to it, we can't accept that. Because in the core of our being, we don't really believe that death is the end. And that's why we think in terms of this life as preparing us for something else. Think of the way that we talk about learning from our mistakes in life. That experience is a great teacher. The idea that going through difficulties does us good and shapes us for something to come. 
We talk about wisdom coming with age. Wisdom is something that enables us to live well, doesn't it? But then what's the point of that, of talking, um, of what's the point of taking until I'm 80 to get wise and then I drop dead of a heart attack? In other words, all this talk of benefiting from experience and growing in wisdom is pointless if in the end it leads to nothing but me pushing up daisies. There's no meaning in that. The teacher in Ecclesiastes came to the same conclusion. He is observing the world in the here and now. He uses the phrase over and over again of life under the sun, meaning just this material world without looking to a God on the outside. At first, he says that wisdom is better than folly. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks around in darkness. But then he he realises that actually the same fate awaits both of them. In chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he says, Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain from being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. If life as we see it under the sun is all that there really is, and death is the end, then the teacher is right. Everything is meaningless. The fate of the wise is no better than the fool. But friends, I want to suggest that deep down we don't believe that. That deep down we believe that our life is a story that should not end. And that we were made for eternity. Our world tells us that death is just a natural part of the circle of life, as sure as night follows day. But deep down we don't believe that. We scream and rage against death because of we know how unnatural it is. That's our second point. There's an unnaturalness to death and it's, intru- it's an intrusion that's not meant to be there. Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet, recognised it when he wrote about the death of his father. This is what he says. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men in their end no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into the good night. Into Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Grave men near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying 
of the light. And you, my Father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. What Thomas was expressing in that rage was that the dying of the light, the end of life, is an evil intrusion that's not meant to be. And we should burn and rave and shake our fists at how death robs the one who is dying of their dreams and their hopes, their desires, their pleasure. And it robs those who are left of their love, their companionship and their presence. And Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived, God in the flesh who created us, he did not greet death with open arms and a smile. I'm not talking about his own death here but the death of a dear friend who we heard about in our reading. We heard about Lazarus and where our story picked it up, he had been dead four days. Jesus was friends with Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. We picked up the story, as I said, after Jesus arrived at the house, Jesus had been in the tomb for four days. What we didn't read was the beginning of the story where Jesus was with his disciples elsewhere. He heard that Lazarus, his friend, was dying. But he delayed. He delayed going there until Lazarus was already dead. Then he arrived on the scene and he found his two sisters distraught over their dead brother. Let's pick it up in John 11, verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now we might ask why Jesus was so troubled. On the one hand, of course, he was moved by seeing Mary so distraught. But Jesus knew that Lazarus wasn't going to stay dead. We, we won't read it, but in the next part of the story... Jesus goes into the tomb and he raises Lazarus from the dead. There's a happy ending to the story. And surely if anyone could come to terms with the reality of death, it's Jesus, the one who created life and presumably death as part of the natural cycle, right? And yet... We're told in verse 33 that Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled by Lazarus' death. Actually, the English there is really insipid. 
In the original Greek language, the word means that he snorted through his nose in anger. It was a very visceral, physical reaction of anger that Jesus felt. And like Dylan Thomas, Jesus was raging against death. Because he, our creator God, knew more than any of us that death is an intruder. It's not meant to be. It was not part of the original creation. It's not part of the natural circle of life. It's an evil black intruder that robs us of hope. And it came courtesy of the rebellion of our first ancestors way back in the garden. When the first man and woman in the garden disobeyed God's command and ate from the tree of knowledge, that led to a whole chain of consequences that included them being banished from the garden and the tree of life. They no longer had access to life forever and death entered the world. Death goes hand in hand with our rebellion. Not only their rebellion, but our rebellion as well. It's a dark reminder that everything is not right with the world. And everything is not well with us. We are right to rant and shake our fists at death. We are right to cry out that there must be something more beyond the grave. Because, friends, we were not created to die. We were made for eternity as eternal beings by an eternal God. And that's shown by the fact that every culture, virtually every culture except our own, has a belief in some shape or form of life beyond the grave. The Vikings had Valhalla. The Hindus have reincarnation. Aboriginal Australians have their spirit world. Where we lived in Taiwan, most people burnt paper money to their ancestors to provide for them in the afterlife. Modern Western culture is a very strange beast that's different to almost every culture that's ever lived in not having a widespread belief in an afterlife in something beyond the grave. As human beings, we have this innate sense that death should not be, that death is not the end of the story. Death is an unnatural intrusion to our eternal nature. Our last point is that this intruder death does not have the last laugh. It's not the end of the story because death itself has met its end, the death of death. Death has been tamed and robbed of its power, and a day is coming when it will be no more. Let's come back to the story of Lazarus. Pick it up again in John 11, verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet Jesus, but Mary stayed at home. 
Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. Martha is distraught because she knows that Jesus could have saved Lazarus from dying. She'd known Jesus long enough to know that he healed diseases, he he kept people from dying, he even raised people from the dead. Then Jesus tells her that her brother will rise again. Oh, I know that, she says. I, I know he will rise from the dead on the last day. Now here probably what Martha was expressing was a common Jewish belief in some kind of resurrection of the dead. But the thing about that belief in the resurrection of the dead was it was very vague. It wasn't clear, it wasn't concrete or even what we might call a confident hope. It was a vague belief that death wasn't the the end. But the Jews still feared death because it was so vague. Death and, and what lay beyond was still unknown. They still feared death. And so for Martha, this idea of the resurrection of the dead might have been some comfort, but probably not much. It was a vague idea versus the reality of her brother's very real physical dead body right in front of her. And actually I think what Martha was going through isn't all that different than it is for us in our culture when we face the death of a loved one. We hear it at funerals, people saying things like, I believe she is in a better place or he is at peace now. Things that might offer some comfort but actually compared with the very real loss of their physical presence, it can be a pretty insipid, weak comfort, can't it? And so Martha's hope in a future resurrection may have helped a bit, but not much. But then Jesus responds to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He puts flesh and blood on this resurrection hope. Suddenly it's not just something vague in the future, but it's something real and physical right there in front of her. You see, Jesus embodies our hope that death is not the end. And he does that because of what he did when he died on the cross. Remember we saw earlier that death and sin go together. Sin is our rebellion against God. And now we live outside the garden, now separated from God, 
and separated from the tree of life. Again, thanks to our original ancestors. But Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross. He paid the price for our forgiveness. As Jeanette said earlier, now we don't have to fear judgment for our sin, which is the right, uh, what we deserve. He paid the price for our forgiveness. As he defeated sin, he also defeated death. Jesus himself rose from the dead three days after he died. And Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And what that resurrection looks like is a real physical body, just as it did for Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples in his real, physical, glorified body. He ate real food. He drank real drink. He showed them the scars on his side from his death, real scars on real flesh. And our resurrection will be the same. None of this insipid floating around on white clouds in some kind of vague spiritual state. What we have to look forward to is a real perfected body in a real perfected world. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia books, describes our future in the new creation as being the real thing. And what we have in this world is just a shadow land. It's just a shadow compared with what is to come. And Lewis imagines what it will be like if someone landed uh, with our bodies as they are now, if we somehow landed in the new creation. And if we walked around in bare feet on the grass, he says we would cut our feet on the grass. Because everything in that world is so much more substantial, more physical if there is such a thing. By comparison, the, these bodies that we have now are just a shadow of what is to come. Jesus brought the death of death. And the life that we can look forward to is real. It's physical. We saw that Jesus tells Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. Then he goes on, verse 25. Sorry, I think I've got the order. Just had it. Verse 25, the one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Jesus died for the whole world to offer eternal life. But not everyone is going to accept that offer. He says in verse 21 that we will live 
we find that life after death by believing in Jesus. But it's not an automatic thing because not everyone wants life with Jesus. Not everyone is willing to accept that he died for their sin. Not everyone is willing to accept him as their king. Not everyone is willing to follow him and live for him. You see, it's a package deal. We can't have eternal life without forgiveness. And we can't have forgiveness without surrendering control of our lives to Jesus. Martha believed Jesus. She said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah means king. So what she was expressing there was she accepted him as her king and as the Son of God, which means that he came from God, that Jesus is in fact God, our creator, that he created Martha, that he is the author of life, that he is her king, and she's willing to believe in that and to follow him. And that's what Jesus calls you and I to do as well. If you haven't found that hope of life in the new creation, of a physical, real physical hope of a life that's more real than this life, but without pain and suffering and without death, then I urge you to come to Jesus Look to him. Ask him to reveal himself to you and he will do that. I'm going to pray a prayer now that God may reveal himself to each one of us. So some of us are believers. So for us I pray that we might be assured of that hope that we have. And then for others of us who don't yet know Jesus, I pray that we might find the hope of eternal life. Why don't you join with me and pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Thank you that he embodies our hope. Thank you that life is in him as a physical man who is God. Please help us to be confident of that hope as we trust in him, as we look to him, as we put our hope in him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So just while the band's getting ready, after we sing... We're going to give you an opportunity to, to respond to what we've heard today. Um, so uh, everyone is going to respond, whether you're a regular here or a visitor. We're going to respond with a comment card. Uh, and if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, perhaps you will have questions about Jesus, you've just started to investigate maybe what it looks like to come to church, uh, questions about what it means to follow Jesus. I really encourage you to tell us on that comment card. And Alpha, as Matt said earlier, is a great way to do that. There's a box you can tick saying you're interested in Alpha. 
If that's you, you don't yet know Jesus, I really encourage you to tick that box. Or just indicate to, to us that, that you would like to find out more. We would love to talk to you. We would love to journey with you as you look to Jesus and discover him because it will change your life.